Reginald's Drama by Saki Read by Richard Crowest Reginald closed his eyes with the elaborate weariness of one who has rather nice eyelashes and thinks it useless to conceal the fact. One of these days, he said, I shall write a really great drama. No one will understand the drift of it, but everyone will go back to their homes with a vague feeling of dissatisfaction with their lives and surroundings. And then they will put up new wallpapers and forget. But how about those that have oak panelling all over the house? said the other. They can always put down new stair carpets, pursued Reginald. And anyhow, I'm not responsible for the audience having a happy ending. The play would be quite sufficient strain on one's energies. I should get a bishop to say it was immoral and beautiful. No dramatist has thought of that before, and everyone would come to condemn the bishop, and they would stay on out of sheer nervousness. After all, it requires a great deal of moral courage to leave in a marked manner in the middle of the second act when your carriage isn't ordered till twelve. And it would commence with wolves worrying something on a lonely waste. You wouldn't see them, of course, but you would hear them snarling and scrunching. And I should arrange to have a wolfy fragrance suggested across the footlights. It would look so well on the programmes. Wolves in the First Act by Jamrach. And old Lady Wattlebury, who never misses a first night, would scream. She's always been nervous since she lost her first husband. He died quite abruptly while watching a county cricket match. Two and a half inches of rain had fallen for seven runs, and it was supposed that the excitement killed him. Anyhow, it gave her quite a shock. It was the first husband she'd lost, you know, and now she always screams if anything thrilling happens too soon after dinner. And after the audience had heard the Wartlebury scream, the thing would be fairly launched. And the plot? The plot, said Reginald, would be one of those little everyday tragedies that one sees going on all round one. In my mind's eye there is the case of the Mudge Jervises, which in an unpretentious way has quite an Enoch Arden intensity underlying it. They'd only been married some eighteen months or so, and circumstances had prevented their seeing much of each other. With him there was always a foursome or something that had to be played and replayed in different parts of the country, and she went in for slumming quite as seriously as if it was a sport. With her, I suppose it was. She belonged to the Guild of the Poor Dear Souls, and they hold the record for having nearly reformed a washerwoman. No one has ever really reformed a washerwoman, and that is why the competition is so keen. You can rescue charwomen by fifties with a little tea and personal magnetism, but with washerwomen it's different. Wages are too high. This particular laundress, who came from Bermondsey or some such place, was really rather a hopeful venture, and they thought at last that she might be safely put in the window as a specimen of successful work. So they had her paraded at a drawing-room at home at Agatha Camelford's. It was sheer bad luck that some liqueur chocolates had been turned loose by mistake among the refreshments. Really liqueur chocolates, with very little chocolate. And, of course, the old soul found them out and cornered the entire stock. It was like finding a whelk stall in a desert, as she afterwards partially expressed herself. When the liqueurs began to take effect, she started to give them imitations of farmyard animals, as they know them in Bermondsey. She began with a dancing bear, 
and you know Agatha doesn't approve of dancing, except at Buckingham Palace under proper supervision. And then she got up on the piano and gave them an organ monkey. I gather she went in for realism rather than a Maeterlinckian treatment of the subject. Finally she fell into the piano and said she was a parrot in a cage, and for an impromptu performance I believe she was very word-perfect. No one had heard anything like it except Baroness Bubelstein, who has attended sittings of the Austrian Reichsrat. Agatha is trying the rest cure at Buxton. But the tragedy? Oh, the Mudge Jervises. Well, they were getting along quite happily, and their married life was one continuous exchange of picture postcards, and then one day they were thrown together on some neutral ground where foursomes and washerwomen overlapped, and discovered that they were hopelessly divided on the fiscal question. They have thought it best to separate, and she is to have the custody of the Persian kittens for nine months in the year, and they go back to him for the winter when she is abroad. There you have the material for a tragedy drawn straight from life, and the piece could be called The Price They Paid for Empire. And, of course, one would have to work in studies of the struggle of hereditary tendency against environment and all that sort of thing. And the woman's father could have been an envoy to some of the smaller German courts. But that's where she'd get her passion for visiting the poor, in spite of the most careful upbringing. C'est le premier pas qui compte as the cuckoo said when it swallowed its foster parent. That, I think, is quite clever. And the wolves? Oh, the wolves would be a sort of elusive undercurrent in the background that would never be satisfactorily explained. After all, life teems with things that have no earthly reason. And whenever the characters could think of nothing brilliant to say about marriage or the war office, they could open a window and listen to the howling of the wolves. But that would be very seldom. (laughs) ¶¶